If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we're gathered tonight to hear your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak powerfully through me. Pray that we would all hear what you want us to hear, that our minds would not be distracted, but that we would train our attention on the word that comes from your mouth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1902... Uh, there was an author named W.W. W. Jacobs who published a short story called The Monkey's Paw. Has anybody ever heard the story The Monkey's Paw? Nah, nobody? Okay. All right, well, it's a classic three wishes story. And, but it also doubles as a horror story and a cautionary tale. So it's a, a three wishes story, but it's also a horror story and a cautionary tale. And that Halloween is in 10 days is merely a spooky coincidence. I didn't, I didn't tie that in on purpose. And in the story, there's an elderly couple. There's Mr. and Mrs. White and their adult son, Herbert. And they come into possession of a shriveled monkey's paw that can grant three wishes. And they're warned that the previous owners of this monkey's paw had terrible misfortune with it. In fact, one even used the third wish to wish for death. Nonetheless, Mr. and Mrs. White want to try out the monkey's paw, but they decide that they're going to be kind of modest, and they, they make their first wish for $200. And upon making the wish, nothing happens, and they just kind of chalk it up as a hoax. The next day, the couple's visited by a stranger who informs them that their adult son, Herbert, has just been killed in an accident at the workplace. This is obviously hard news for the elderly couple to hear. Herbert's company claims no responsibility for the accident. However, not heartless, it does wish to provide money for funeral costs in the amount 
of $200. After the funeral, Mrs. White is distraught with grief, and she gets the idea to use the monkey's paw to bring Herbert back to life. Mr. White's dead set against it, but the wife makes the wish before he can stop her. Later that night, they hear the sound of a knock at the door, and then another soft but insistent knock, and then a third knock. Mrs. White flies down the stairs, eager to throw the door open and greet her dead son, who's now been returned to them thanks to the monkey's paw. In horror at what he expects to see at the door, Mr. White searches frantically for the monkey's paw and makes his third and final wish to send away the abomination that's outside. And when Mrs. White opens the door, there's nothing there but the wind. It's a chilling, be careful what you wish for kind of story, right? But I heard this story a long time ago, and I thought about it often over the years. And I think it's also a sad and convicting picture of how we sometimes think of God, our Father in heaven. How many of us have received good things in our lives and wondered at the same time whether those good things would be taken away? How many of us have said things like, things are just going too well. I'm waiting for the bottom to fall out, or I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. How many of us have experienced hardships and testing and said, God is putting me through the ringer. I must have done something wrong. I must have done something to anger him. If we're not careful, we can treat God like a monkey's paw and expecting that behind every blessing is a curse and that what God gives with one hand, he takes away with the other hand. But we're not the first to do this. Remember these lines from Chad's sermon last week. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So in their minds, the deliverance at the Red Sea, was it from the hand of a loving and generous God with a purpose for his people? No. In their minds, God really just wanted to kill them in the wilderness with hunger. No blessing, only a curse. What really seemed like a gift actually had a catch to it. God gave with one hand and he took away with the other. Here's the main thing I think James wants to say to us tonight in this text. When you're experiencing testing by trials of various kinds, the one thing that you absolutely must get right is your conviction that God is good and that he is for you. No matter what, you must have the conviction that God is good and that he is for you. If you doubt God's intentions toward you, you're in terrible trouble. Not because God gets offended or insulted or mad at you, it's just that if you doubt God's intentions toward you, you've removed the only ground that's actually there to stand on. You've taken away the ground under your feet. God's goodness and generosity and his grace toward us is the foundation of all reality. If you take that away and doubt God's intentions, you're like Wiley Coyote in the old cartoons who goes speeding off a cliff and stands firmly in midair right before plummeting down to the canyon below. What we believe about God and how we live out that belief makes all the difference when we experience testing by trials of various kinds. 
because you can't really believe that your trials have redeeming value and that they're part of God's plan for bringing us into maturity if you think God's out to get you or if you think he doesn't care about you. And in this section tonight, James 1, 5 through 18, James repeatedly emphasizes God's goodness and his trustworthiness and his generosity. Here are the key passages. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. In verses 17 and 18, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So let's look at the first one, verses 5 through 8 in chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, it would be easy to read verse 5 as saying this. If you want to know how to get out of your tough circumstances, ask God and he'll give you the wisdom to fix it. Because that's how we often think of wisdom. That it's like a skeleton key or know-how and it's something that can unlock our problems and fix them for us. It's the answer in all capital letters. It's, it's the answer that we're looking for. That's not really how wisdom works in the Bible. About two years ago, uh, some of you might remember that we went through the wisdom books in the Bible. We went through Job and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And when Chad was introducing Ecclesiastes, he said that we think of wisdom as taking the right steps to get the outcome that we desire. And the wisdom writers say that this is garbage. It's not true. Five steps to achieving blank is not a scriptural idea. That's not how wisdom works. In fact, the wisdom that the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to drive home to us is this. Hey, you're going to die one day. Your life is temporary and it's fleeting. And there's much in life that's mysterious and that you can't figure out and God doesn't want you to. And this is meant to be liberating and set us free from idolatry. And that's how wisdom really works. Not as a know-how skeleton key, but it reframes reality for us. It helps us see reality accurately. When we ask for wisdom, we would like for God to say, do this and the pain will stop. Or do this and you'll get exactly the outcome that you want. We want the answer. But think about James's audience, as I talked about a month ago, that was experiencing great persecution and on the run for their lives. Can you just fix persecution and suffering? No, you can't. For us, can we just fix death when it comes for our loved ones? Can we bring them back? No, there's no wisdom that brings them back. Can we just fix medical issues going on in our bodies? Most of the time we can't. Some things in our lives can't be fixed. They can only be born. They can only be endured. 
Some life events have no answers. And to endure faithfully, we need wisdom from God so that we can see reality accurately. And so James is saying that when you go through testing by trials of various kinds, ask God for wisdom. Ask God to help you see rightly. Ask him to help you see how he is using his trial, this trial, to help you grow up in Christ. And James says that God gives generously and without reproach. God's not going to say, why are you asking me this? What's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? If we ask, God will help us see how to be joyful when we're tested through trials of various kinds. So what does it mean to be double-minded, as it says in verse 8? Well, I think it's like a monkey's paw kind of view of God. It's saying, well, God will help me, but it's not really going to look like what I want. It's not going to look like what I would really prefer. Or God will give me something that he considers good for me, but if he really cared about me, he would give me the answer that I really want. He would give me the outcome that I really want. God gives generously, and he gives without reproach, but if we doubt that his intentions are good, then we are double-minded. And when we're double-minded, we're in a bad position. Because one half of the mind is saying, God is good, and we can trust him all the way. But the other half of the mind is saying, we're on our own. And if we're going to get what we really want, we're going to have to get it ourselves. And so we're willing to stay faithful and obey up to a point. Because if we're double-minded, we're also willing to go our own way after our own pursuits. And James recognizes that this is a major pitfall for followers of Jesus. So right after leading off his letter by talking about finding joy in the process of testing, he warns against being double-minded. He warns against doubting God's intentions for us. Does that make sense? So again, I'll say what I said earlier. When you're experiencing testing by trials of various kinds, the one thing that you must absolutely get right is your conviction that God is good and that he is for you. All right, let's look at the next place where James points to the character of God for understanding our periods of testing. This is verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now we might not say something exactly like, I am being tempted by God. But if we're already double-minded, we might say things like, God is setting me up to fail. Or God is making it as hard on me as he possibly can. Or God just wants to see if I'll sin or if I'll be faithful. And this is where I think we need to draw a real crucial distinction between testing and temptation. And this is the difference between testing and temptation. Testing is part of God's process for bringing us into maturity. God gives us testing to make us stronger, to make us stronger. Temptation is the work of demons from the kingdom of darkness, and they tempt us to make us weaker. And the demons know us well, and they know how to use our desires, our own desires, to lure and to entice us. 
So testing makes us stronger. It's given by God. Temptation is designed by the evil one to make us weaker. James says that God tempts nobody. Our Father doesn't purpose to make us weaker. He doesn't set out to try to make us weaker. God takes even the most difficult and painful episodes in our lives and uses them to make us stronger, always stronger, always pointed toward maturity. If you're tempted to sin, you need to properly assign where that temptation is coming from. Are you being lured and enticed by your own desires? Are you hoping for a good reason to sin? If so, that's not coming from God. That never, ever comes from God. That comes from being double-minded. James is insistent that God is good and faithful and trustworthy. All things that he couldn't be if he were trying to lead us in two directions at once. We may be double-minded, but God is never double-minded. Amen? And James closes this section in much the same way as these other ones that I've read. So let's go to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James warns against being deceived. And when we see the word deceived, I think we should instinctively remember Eve's words in the garden. The serpent deceived me and I ate. James is pointing to those demonic voices that can make us double-minded. Those voices are not for us and they want to harm us. And so when we're pressed by testing of various trials of various kinds, don't be deceived into unfaithfulness to God by obeying those other voices. And James says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And he's talking about two different kinds of gifts, good gifts and perfect gifts. Now, we easily recognize what James means by good gifts. Beautiful weather, good food, good sleep, beaches, Sabbath, coffee, forests, fall colors, conversation that expands our souls, marital oneness, rejoicing in our kids, and Christmas music, which is for Kate Ballard, but she's not here. And the list will look different for everyone, but when we hear good, we should think back to the days of creation and God pronouncing everything that he makes as good. These things are good, and we recognize that the good things come from God's hand. And we say things like, thank you, Father, for this amazing day, a beautiful day like today, 70-degree day in October. But James says that every perfect gift is also from above. Now, how, how can you get more perfect than the list that I just read, right? Well, what James is saying is that there are good gifts and there are perfecting gifts. The word perfect is the same word from verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So perfect gifts are gifts that move us Toward maturity. There's good gifts, but there's also perfect gifts, and those gifts move us toward maturity. And these are usually trials. These are usually things that are not fun to go through. 
But James says that these gifts, these perfecting gifts, are every much as from God's hands as good gifts. Good gifts like sleep and steak and family and friends, those come from God just the same as perfecting gifts. And they're both truly gifts. That which takes us toward maturity is a real gift from God. And James says that these gifts come down from the Father of lights. This is the only place in the whole Bible where the term Father of lights is used. So why does James use it? Well, with good gifts, we're reminded of Genesis 1 and God pronouncing good after everything he makes. And on day four, he makes the two great lights as lamps for the sky. And he makes the stars. And in that sense, God is the Father of lights. But God also says that those heavenly lights would be signs. And in Scripture, heavenly lights symbolize earthly rulers and governments. And so we're being matured to rule with Jesus, to be lights in the world. And this is why Paul says in Philippians 2, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Sounds a lot like James, I think. God's our Father, and He's the Father of lights. He's the Father who is giving us perfecting gifts so that we can shine as lights in the kingdom, so that we can rule with Jesus. And He's the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't strike up a plan only to get bored with it and abandon it and move on to something else. We do those kind of things, but God doesn't. God isn't for us one minute and the next minute he's against us. If we think God is fickle or moody or inconsistent, that's on us. We have God wrong. And James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will. This is all God's idea. Our own existence that he's redeemed us by the blood of his son, that we're being changed into his son's likeness, that we'll live forever in God's presence. This is all God's idea. We didn't come up with this. He did. And he's going to see it all the way through. So there's no variation or shadow due to change with God. And so rather than see our trials as evidence that God is like the monkey's paw, giving with one hand and then taking it away with the other, We see our trials as part of God's grand design, perfecting us. And it's his idea in the first place. And so I'll say it a final time. When you're experiencing testing by trials of various kinds, the one thing that you absolutely must get right is your conviction that God is good and that he is for you. Don't remove from under your feet the only ground that there really is to stand on. And so here's a couple of application questions. Do you really relate to God as generous and giving without reproach? Or when you receive something good, do you expect it to come with a catch? If it's the latter, confess your sin to God and repent. Be done with it and go through every trial with the certainty that God is for you, even when you don't understand why everything is happening as it is. Do you experience testing as something that will make you stronger? Or do you think that God tempts you and sets you up to fail? If it's the latter, 
confess your sin and repent. Be done with it and accept the truth that God can't be tempted by evil and he tempts no one. At no point is God ever trying to make you weaker. Do you receive both good gifts and perfecting gifts as coming down from the Father of lights? Will you let him use testing by trials of various kinds to transform you into a shining star who is able to rule with Jesus? What a gift it is to see everything that happens in our lives as pathways to maturity. That nothing is pointless or random or beyond God's ability to redeem. Hallelujah. Amen? Amen.